Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Presumption of Innocence, a podcast brought to you by the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice at Fox Rothschild. I'm Matt Adams. I'm your host for today. I'm one of the co-chairs of the practice group, and I have the great fortune of being joined by two phenomenal guests and friends of our firm, Stephanie O'Rourke and Dana Freed, both of the Cone Resnick accounting firm. Uh, Stephanie is a CPA and tax partner leading their National Hospitality Emerging Concepts Group, was the co-leader of the SBA task force that was intimately involved in dissecting uh, many, many of the various programs that emerged as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dana is a JD and an LLM. He serves as a managing director in the National Tax Services Practice Group at Cone Resnick. He leads up their executive compensation and employee benefits practice and is uh, instrumental in leading the firm's practice and assisting employers with ERC tax credit issues. And that's what we're talking about today. We're going to unpack for the next uh, 40 minutes or so the employee retention credit, which on its face could uh, seem as a dry subject uh, and perhaps not worthy of a podcast, but it's one of the largest and I think most impactful pieces of the CARES Act, which was passed in uh, March of 2020 in direct response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it really arrives out of Section 2301 of the CARES Act to literally provide eligible employers with a refundable tax credit. And that concept of a refundable tax credit is uh, critical to an understanding of, of what we're here to talk about today. So uh, Dana, I wanna kick it to you. Tell me in a very basic terms what a refundable tax credit is. Thanks, Matt. Hi, everybody. So the concept originally could have been an income tax credit but for the fact that Congress wanted this to be available both for taxpaying entities as well as not-for-profit non-taxpayers. So they went with a payroll tax, and that's the only reason they went with a payroll tax. But a fully refundable tax basically means whether you do or don't owe payroll taxes, this is sort of separate and apart. So in theory, if you've paid all your payroll taxes and then become entitled to an ERC, which again is a type of payroll tax, then as a fully refundable payroll tax, you can simply request your, your, your credit in the form of a check. And that's generally what people have been doing, getting very, in some cases, very, very significant amounts. So like we saw with PPP, like we saw with portions of the IDLE program, this is basically free government money. Not quite free. And that's because unlike some of the other, like the FFCRA credits, for example, were actually gross income for income tax purposes, uh, there is a tax hit here to the employer, again, if it's a taxpayer, in the sense that when you receive an ERC, it reduces the employer compensation deduction for that year, dollar for dollar. So in theory, it increases your taxable income. So it's not quite free, but you're right. That there's no, it's not a loan that you have to repay or have forgiven. It's a check. So Matt, to Dana's point about the taxability of the credit, um, being that there is a reduction in your wage deduction, there's a, a reduction in that. I, I would like to point out 
that because there is a misconception that people believe employers believe that when they are applying for the credit or receive the refund is when the reduction comes through. But that is not the case. If you applied for a credit based upon 2020 wages, that reduction in wage deduction has to happen in 2020 and the same as 2021. So I, I do want to point that out because people do not understand that because they, they're, they're actually getting refunds much later and actually amending their returns much later. There are some people still amending for 2020. Right. And I appreciate you amplifying that, Stephanie. And, and I think like we've seen with many of the government stimulus programs that have been brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen it with PPP. And I know the three of us have talked extensively about both iterations of the PPP program. And one of the earlier versions of our Presumption of Innocence podcast, we actually dissect the, the anatomy of an investigation into PPP fraud. But suffice it to say, for purposes here, when the government is literally providing taxpayers the opportunity to get a check in the mail from the government, the opportunities for fraud and abuse are significant. And we see every day new headlines about criminal prosecutions being brought against individuals throughout the country who have taken advantage of some of these programs. But obviously, starting from the perspective that in order to avail yourself properly of these programs, you need to have your ducks in a row before getting involved, applying for the credit. So Stephanie, I'd like you to walk us through a little bit about some of the documentation that needs to be in place in order to both assess eligibility for the program and to assess the amount of the available credit to the taxpayer. Now, we're going to talk separately about the standard. What does the taxpayer need to have at the ready to start making those determinations? Sure. So unlike the PPP, when you are applying for the credit, you are not handing in any per se payroll records or employee records or things of that or financial statements of that nature. Um, you should definitely have the documentation on hand, acting as if you will be audited by the IRS. Dana likes to say, just put it in the top, your top drawer to have it. So part of the requirements, and we'll, we'll talk about those further a little bit down the line, but you know whether you're a small employer or a large employer, which is actually you need to determine the number of your full-time employees, not full-time equivalent, but full-time employees in 2019. Uh, there, there are other exceptions to that rule based upon when you started, but let's just say you need to have documentation associated with that. Your uh, reduction in revenue when you compare quarters from either 2020 and 2021 to 2019, you have to have financial statements or you know tax support for those quarters, um, no different than you would have for your, your, your tax return. Um, you also, if, if you are looking at a partial suspension of operations due to government orders, you're going to have to have that documentation avail available with respect to how the government orders associated with your business and how um, that affected your business. You know, those government orders affected the made that partial suspension of uh, caused that partial suspension of operations. So those are those are very three. Obviously, your payroll records, right? So your payroll journals. If you receive PPP, 
Um, you, as everybody I'm sure knows, you can't double dip. So you need to make sure that you're providing that documentation or have that on hand, that documentation to show the wages that you use for PPP as compared to the wages that you're using for ERC to ensure that you're not double dipping. And then if you've taken other, other per se credits, whether it be an FFCRA credit, whether it be a WATI or work opportunity tax credit. So there's, the government made sure there was, you weren't using the same wages for many of the different credits out there. And so having that documentation in your top drawer and making sure that you have everything sort of locked and loaded before you get audited or if you get audited, it's important. But I please note that what you are filing with the government is an amended payroll tax return, or if you're doing the credit as you go along, some people have done that have done that with their payroll companies, then um, your payroll company has that information. And I'd like to tell people when we're talking about documentation requirements, I, I refer to it as the break glass if needed file. And I know I've shared that both with the two of you when we're talking about PPP requirements. The idea that that the government can come back and look at what you're, you know, the basis for what you're claiming can't be overstated. I think getting those documents, getting your ducks in a row before you go and take the credit through what you say as the amended return process is critically important in surviving the defensibility question. Now, Dana, anything to add as it relates to documentation? Yeah, I'd just like to point out that Congress was very cognizant of the fact that this is not an application like PPP. This is claiming a credit on a payroll tax return. The historical audit percentage on payroll tax returns is extremely low, maybe one to 2%. And Congress was very concerned about that and didn't want people taking a flyer and hoping not to get audited. So as a technical matter, in order to be eligible, this isn't getting your ducks in a row. This is required under the statute. The employer must have in its possession documentation of its eligibility for the credit, the fact that it paid qualified wages and qualified health plan expenses and the actual calculations and backup. So this really isn't the usual situation of put it in your desk and hope for the best. This is, it must be in your desk or as a technical matter, you're not eligible to claim the credit in the first place. Yeah, that's a very good point. And to build on what you just said, Dana, about the historical low frequency of these being audited, in light of the fact that, I mean, maybe technically it's not free money, but it sure seems like free money. Do you expect that the frequency of audit sort of scrutiny of these amended returns increases? You know, I don't know how to answer that question for the simple reason that we've all been listening to the IRS for years say how terribly understaffed it is. Right now, of course, lots of people have COVID and possibly at the government as well. So it's really hard to say. We know for a fact that they've been very slow in responding. So we have no way of knowing whether or not they're going to be able to put themselves into a position of, of greater audits than they have done historically. You also have to remember that the folks in that group are payroll experts, but they're not necessarily controlled group experts or revenue recognition experts. And the fact is, is that this, this law is very broad and very complex. So you ask a fair question. I really don't know the answer. And it's really a matter of, you would think, cost-benefit analysis. Does the government want to train people? and make a huge investment in a credit that's only available for basically six quarters, or they would they prefer to put the money and effort into training people to do other types of perhaps more beneficial to the government, such as you know, auditing 
very wealthy people and very large corporations. Yeah, from where I sit, I've seen the government bring to bear quite a significant amount of new technologies like artificial intelligence to pick out outliers when it comes to these COVID-19 recovery programs. And I, I think, in my view, there is going to be a band at which they are going to scrutinize. And it's got to be on the higher end, right? And my view is that what I think the government is going to bring to bear on this is similar to what they've been doing in the healthcare space, which is where there are large astronomical amounts of the credit being given to a particular taxpayer. Those are going to take scrutiny. But I really appreciate your point about not just break glass if needed, that this is a legal requirement that you have your documentation lined up, that you have your ducks in a row before taking the credit. Let's shift directly into some of the mechanical aspects of the credit. And I know there's both legal and accounting issues galore in sort of unpacking, which really is a two-part test, whether there is an eligible employer, and then secondly, whether there are qualified wages. Let's talk, Dana, you and me about sort of the eligible employer standard, and then I want to kick it over to our CPA friend, Stephanie, for a moment to talk about some of the qualified wage issues. Dana, walk us through a little bit of this eligible employer standard and what you see as some of the potential pitfalls. Well, I think the most important aspect, just to quickly summarize, is that a lot of employers confuse eligibility with whether they're paying qualified wages. You can be perfectly eligible, but still not have any qualified wages not be entitled to claim an ERC. So looking at eligibility specifically, eligibility is a function of either satisfying an empirical test called a significant decline in gross receipts test, or a facts and circumstances test that your business has suffered a partial suspension of its operations based on a governmental order. So very quickly, the empirical test is based on comparing gross receipts to 2019. So on the theory that 2019 pre-pandemic base period for comparison purposes, you compare the gross receipts in each calendar quarter of 2019 to the same calendar quarter in 2020 or 2021 with different standards applicable to whether you've had a significant decline for 20 versus 2021. One of the key aspects of this was at the end of 2020, Congress stepped back and I'm sure it was under attack, but basically said, we made these thresholds too difficult and relaxed the thresholds very dramatically for 2021, in one case being this decline in gross receipts for which a 2020 credit required a greater than 50% decline. And then they eased that requirement to a greater than 20% decline for 2021. The empirical test is always the way to go if you're able to pass it, because if you do pass it, you are eligible for the entire calendar quarter for which you are testing. However, as you mentioned, Matt, one of the key aspects is gross receipts is determined on a controlled group basis. And for some companies, that's not a very complex determination. You have a parent sitting on top of a subsidiary, but in many, many scenarios, you have multiple uh, individuals with trusts and their own LLCs, and it can become a very convoluted and complicated procedure to first figure out 
which controlled group existed in 2019 versus 20 versus 21 for purposes of this empirical test. If you're unable to pass the test, then you look at facts and circumstances, and you will have suffered a partial suspension of your business operations if a government order imposed restrictions on the operations of your business that had more than a nominal effect, taking into account that if you are able to conduct comparable operations via telework. So if your business is sitting in front of a computer with a telephone and you could do that just as easily as home, at home, the fact that, for example, your office building was shut or the fact that you were not able to leave your house would not make the employer eligible under the simple theory that it was able to conduct comparable operations. And thanks, Dean. Now, I can tell you just from personal experience in trying to help clients unpack that standard, that there's a lot more that meets the eye. And in terms of dis uh, discerning truly whether you meet that eligible employer standard in order to avail yourself of the ERC, it really does take careful consideration of the specific facts and circumstances, both of your business and the impact that the pandemic has had on your operations. And that just can't generally be done with a cookie cutter approach. The science that I've guided through this process, we have literally spent you know, many pages of legal memoranda trying to show our analysis, if you will. And I encourage anyone who is trying to make that eligible employer determination to do so with the careful guidance of legal and accounting professionals like us, because to go into that without real careful consideration of some of the nuance, like you say, about the, uh, about the control group standard and what have you, is really a mistake. Now, coming to the second prong of the ERC standard, Stephanie, please talk to us a little bit about what it means to have qualified wages. To determine qualified wages, it's dependent on if you're a small employer or a large employer. If you're deemed to be a large employer where you have, you know, based on 2020, over 100 or 2021, more than 500, as determined your number in, in 2019, then uh, you're, if you're a lot, deemed to be a large employer, it's, it's basically wages that were where your employee did not provide a service. So that is so in, in those instances, we're finding that um, the, the credit is not that accretive. It's not that large because most people did not pay people not to work. Um, you have certain instances where they might have kept management on and they paid them you know, high level management. But you also might have um, other instances where maybe they were out for COVID and they didn't get the FFCRA credit. For that, but um, they were paid anyway, and there was some state because there were some state requirements in, in the various states to have these people not work, and, and you were still you were still paying them. If you are a small employer, then most wages qualify. Um, again, keeping uh, in mind if you receive PPP to make sure that you're not double dipping. But there are there are instances where there are certain wages that don't qualify. So so having somebody Put together um, all wages and saying, okay, well, in the quarter, all my wages were my wages were X, and I'm going to claim I'm going to claim that. You know, up to you get for e for 2020, it's up to ten thousand dollars of per employee for qualified wages and health 
care expenses. For, um, for 2021, it's 10,000 per quarter that you look at qualified wages to calculate the credit. Now there are certain there are certain uh, wages that that are paid might be, might have been paid during those quarters or, or the year of the 2020 that are not eligible. So if you have pre-existing vacation, sick, and other personal leave um, wages that are paid out, if you're a large employer, those don't count. If you are a small employer, um, those wages will count. If you are if you are paying somebody a former employer, a former employee, excuse me. Um, for like a severance package, that is not considered uh, qualified wages for um, ERC purposes. If um, your employee is exempt from Social Security and Medicare taxes, that is another situation where you would not, those would not be qualified, deemed to be qualified wages. And then um, if you are related to ownership of the company, and um, and and there there it's 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 pretty unbelievable how many people are are not allowed to be deemed you know are deemed to be related um, you know it's not just your child it's you know brother sister stepbrother stepsister father mother you know niece nephew aunt uncle uh, daughter in law son in law like all, all the the different individuals so if um, those wages paid to you know per se family members those are not deemed to be eligible wages for um, ERC purposes. And um, obviously, if you are participating in some other credits, whether it's an FFCRA um, or a work opportunity tax credit, those are not um, eligible wages as, as well. So on the qualified health, something on the uh, positive that people don't realize is that not only is the employer uh, portion of um, qualified health that, that they pay, but if the, if the company has a cafeteria plan and there are pre-tax deductions associated with that for the employees, those count as qualified healthcare uh, expenses, which um, most people do, do not know that. Dana, do you wanna add? Just to mention that the $10,000 that Stephanie's talking about, again, is a function of two things. So if, if your employees are making more than $40,000 a year, they're there for the whole year, they're gonna have $10,000 of qualified wages. But if you have part-time employees or new hires or people who've left who don't have enough wages, you can also count qualified health plan expenses, which are employer premiums for medical, dental, and vision. And as Stephanie said, employee premiums as well, as long as those employees are paid on a pre-tax basis, which generally is the case. I also wanna add, because I know at the beginning when people were calculating their wages in the hospital, because I deal in the hospitality uh, industry, that people asked about tips and there was a lot of confusion around tips. And it's it's all wages subject to Social Security and Medicare. So tips would be included. Uh, a lot of companies did not believe that that was the case and did not include it and they are included. So that's something really important because as you know, for certain hospitality companies or, or just in a tipped environment, that amount could be very large. Yeah, and I think the takeaway from discussion of both prongs of that test is that there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of intricacy to, to determining both the eligible employer standard and, and there's two tests that you could subscribe to. And with application of this sort of convoluted two-prong test, I see three basic risks. 
The small versus large eligibility criteria is something that needs to be carefully considered, especially in organizations that may have many layers and stratified entities that sort of make up their organization chart. I also see this revenue recognition issue as something really significant when it comes to perhaps the qualification standard under the decreased revenue prong, the eligible employer standard. As a CPA, Stephanie, oftentimes you have some options about when you recognize revenue that part of some sound tax strategy may be to recognize revenue in ways that may be tax uh, advantaged. What potential revenue recognition issues do you see as it pertains to ERC? So I will say, like I, I tell all my clients and, and pretty much everybody that I speak to um, associated with all these programs, don't, don't do anything differently than you wouldn't have done in your normal course of your business if you had not received these, these funds or applied for a credit. So on the accrual, if you're a accrual basis taxpayer, accrual basis financials, it's pretty cut and dry following those, those standards, you know, when you should recognize revenue, when it's earned. And that's when you should typically recognize revenue from an accrual base. There's, you know, nuances in every single industry, whether it's the construction or hospitality around gift cards and construction around percentage of completion. But if what you're representing, how you're preparing your tax returns and what you're representing when you're on your financials, whether they're internal or they're audited, um, you shouldn't do anything differently. With tax basis or cash basis, there's where, you know, from a revenue perspective, you know, if they're holding back checks, let's just say for a quarter, um, because they had 2020, they had some foresight when, when they knew that they could apply for this credit. So if, if you're holding back checks, obviously, if somebody is paying you for your services and it's, you, you receive the check within the quarter, it should be deposited and it should be recorded on your books. Again, you wouldn't, in the normal course of your business, you would probably deposit that. Now, year end, if you're a, um, you know, in the fourth quarter, uh, and again, fourth quarter 2021, except in, in very uh, few circumstances, is is no longer part of this, but part of the credit. But you, at least for 2021, that would be something that I could see people trying to do, not um, depositing um, in in their in their bank accounts checks that they receive from their customers, so they wouldn't have to record the revenue. But again, or or certain instances where they're deferring revenue, they're putting it on their balance sheet as saying that they didn't earn it from an accrual basis when when they actually did. So it really comes down to um, changing your accounting methods and practices, and that's not something that that should be do, uh, done. Remember that when you're filing a tax return, when you're a company. Uh, ownership or the CFO or somebody in the organization is signing off that they're true and accurate. And, um, and so you should be, shouldn't be thinking any differently. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great point. You can always go by, well, this is, this is how we've always recognized revenue. And this is, this is our, this is our standard accounting principles and we have an established track record on it um, rather than trying to shave down that square peg and fit it into a round hole just to avail yourself of the credit. I mentioned the risks, again, of small versus large employer eligibility and the need to sort of dissect the organizational chart. As we've been talking, I'm sort of compiling a list of where I see the, the regulatory and enforcement risks. 
And one that comes to mind as you talked through the alternative standards for eligible employer before was what I see as a bit of a gray area associated with suspension of operations and what that really means. I know I've worked in particular with your firm on a couple of engagements where in the hospitality industry, for example, maybe there wasn't a shutdown order that closed a restaurant, but perhaps there was a administrative directive from whatever governmental body that said tables had to be further apart, which limited the number of patrons that could be in a particular restaurant where the capacity used to be 100, now it's 50 because the physical plant has to be modified in some way to account for social distancing measures associated with the pandemic. Talk just a little bit about some of the gray areas that come up as it relates to that suspension of operations test. Sure, Matt. Well, what it really boils down to, again, is that it's facts and circumstances and that reasonable people could view facts and circumstances differently. What I always tell client 100% of the time is that no one knows their business. No payroll agent with the IRS knows their business as well as they do. And ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, it's the obligation of the employer to have documentation in its possession, taking a reasonable position that it has a reasonable basis that it had a partial suspension of operations. So what that really does mean is analysis and documentation of that analysis. You know, you mentioned capacity restrictions, and obviously that's been a huge issue for the restaurant industry that the government has said, look, if we shut down your restaurant for in-dining, but we allow you to have takeout and delivery, and you hit a home run and you have more business than you've ever had before because you're really good at takeout and social advertising, et cetera, doesn't matter as long as there's been a significant restriction on your business. And capacity restrictions are not only restaurants, capacity restrictions are manufacturing facilities and factories. If a factory has a capacity restriction or even a, a six foot social distancing restriction, such that they used to have 100 people on the floor and now they can only have 50, then that also has a dramatic impact on that particular business's operations. So it's always a gray area in the sense that every business is different. And that's why my position is always, it's really the employer's job. You know, we assist by being another objective eye and giving our thoughts as to whether or not they've done a really helpful analysis. But it's like in college, when you're told to, when you write a, a paragraph, the first sentence is supposed to be your thesis. And then you explain your thesis. If you're in court and you're writing a brief, it's the same idea. So you don't just say we had a partial suspension because a government order did this or that. You need to go through a full and complete analysis as how it impacted your business, showing as many different metrics as possible where there was more than a nominal effect on your business operations. Like my sixth grade math teacher said, you don't get any credit unless you show your work. And I think what the takeaways from our, our conversation here today have been is that there is a lot to unpack when it comes to the ERC and the name of the game when trying to take the credit in a way that minimizes risk to an employer is that you, you need to do so in a reasonable and a defensible way. The top three risks that I've distilled from our conversation are really that revenue recognition issue that Stephanie talked about, the gray areas that surround this 
suspension of operations in circumstances where we have 50 different states doing 50 different things and hundreds of municipalities now getting into the fold as it relates to government restrictions. And then the idea of including some of those ineligible wages in the ultimate calculation. I can't thank the two of you enough. We've only scratched the surface when it comes to the ERC. And I think if anybody out there is listening to this, I think one of the takeaways is that you need sound accounting advice and legal advice when it comes to making the ultimate determination whether the ERC is right for your business. And the consequences of failing to do that could be extraordinarily catastrophic. Thanks again. And thanks for joining us on the Presumption of Innocence. We'll see you next time. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you having us. Take care. Bye-bye.